Hey, welcome back to The Broad Perspective. I'm your host, Megan Cruz, and we are here today with uh, one of my dear, dear friends and someone who you all will be very excited uh, to hear the very soothing sound of her voice. We have Bobby, Miss Bobby from the Afternoon Special Fame uh, here with us. It's such a privilege. Hey, Bobby, how are oh you? Oh my gosh, Megan, it's so nice to be here with you sharing this <laughs> space. You know, I feel like a lot of our podcasting experience in the past has been in a in a bit more of a hostile space. Mm-hmm. Much more hostile. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's nice. I feel like, you know, we all know that everybody here is an ally and that's not mm. that's not necessarily the case in our other spaces. And we're um, never it's not with each other. It's just against Joe and with It's Joe literally to us. just against Yeah, for those of you unaware, um we are friends with another podcaster. Um Cinema Joe. Mm-hmm. He has a podcast and um we've both been been attacked on it quite viciously, I would I, say. Pretty viciously. I would say consistently volatile yeah, space. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. Horrible. He's never going <laughs> to no, invite we... us back on that show. <laughs> he's, he's never. He's just going to hear about this from like secondhand, and he's going to be like, "What did you say?" About me? <laughs> oh, Joe's great. Um, but we are very excited to be in this um, in this space together, Bobby. I have to say, when I was even just thinking about this podcast, like what I really wanted to do with this podcast, um, you were like immediately one of the first people that I wanted to have on, and not just because you are a treasured friend of mine. Uh, whose input I value like so highly, but also just because like the analysis and critique and everything that you share uh, on your platforms is just so insightful and wonderful. And I just I had to I was like, I need to know Bobby's experiences. I want to I want to know more about Bobby. And I think the world deserves to know more. Oh, my God. Are we going to kiss? <laughs> I mean, anything could happen, Any, Bobby. Anything. anything could happen. We are on the complete opposite sides of the country right now, but anything could happen. <laughs> It's, you know, anything in a, in a digital, in a digital (laughs) space. Um, But no, I, I'm thrilled. And um, I guess, yeah, I guess I, maybe uh, you, you kind of know the vibe, what we're trying to talk about here. I'd love if you could give maybe just like a little bit of background on like, first of all, how you, how you got into film, like what was, what, what was your like first foray and not necessarily like the kinds of films that maybe, um, that maybe weren't weren't stereotypical, but just was there like one inciting incident or was it growing up watching a certain kind of programming or I want to hear I want to hear about the inception of like the making of the afternoon special. Yeah. So I think a lot of my first forays into film were just whatever was around like VHS wise. So I think the first movies that I remember watching and like having like sentience and remembering uh were cinderella and aladdin because my grandma just had them on vhs and i wore those vhs's out um (laughs) and then from there i think it just kind of built into animation was like that was my way in um we're both you know animation girlies and i think that it started in that space i think animation was where i kind of cut my teeth with understanding like what film was and it was very, very crucial to building my my media literacy. And then I think from there, when I was like teenager, I discovered Spielberg for the first time. And I saw, I think it was E.T. was the was the movie that, you know, I think awakened me cinematically. And I was like, oh, this is what movies can be. Like this is what they can do. <laughs> and then from there, it, it informed pretty much everything that I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to work in it in some capacity uh 
again, I still don't know what, uh, even now as, you know, at 24, 25, but I just knew I was like, I need to be like there making it. I want to make magic like that. And so that's where it got started for me. That is incredible. And I mean, honestly, it's interesting you say that you don't really know what you want to be doing still, because I do think that like, that's, first of all, a totally valid experience, especially, you know, in your early 20s. Um, But I also think just like we're at an interesting moment in time where like, the entire film industry, like the media landscape is in like a transitional period where there's a lot of like nebulous lines between the different kinds of media that we're seeing, like film and even just the rise of like TV and prestige TV over the past decade. Um, We're seeing like there's I think the conversation about like movie stars versus TV stars is also really interesting because there's not really a difference now. You can be doing something incredible as like a super A-lister just on TV. Um, And even obviously, you know, as much as people hate to admit it, but like online content and short form content is also just like really having a moment. And we see people like Issa Rae um, and Quinta Brunson who like came up from YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like interesting because I think that it's not even necessarily that you have to like choose what you want to do, just knowing that this is something that you love and finding finding projects and avenues that fit for you is kind of just like a universal experience right now it seems like yeah like it's definitely that that siloed kind of approach to where you want to work in entertainment it's it's no longer that um I know much to the chagrin of Jennifer Aniston who every single (laughs) chance she gets she is talking about influencers becoming actors and I'm like girl well I'm sorry I don't know what to tell you it's just things are broadening so she does seem just strangely strangely upset about it uh for someone who really hasn't worked regularly in years yeah still cutting and living off of those friends residuals but you know the influencers are the problem I get it I I get it Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I, it's been really cool seeing everything you've done so far. And I'm sure you're going to do awesome things. And I mean, Spielberg is definitely a fantastic intro. It's interesting to me how many people like Spielberg was the one who did it because I mean, it it feels like a bit of a cliche, but it's because it's a it's, it's a cliche for a reason. Spielberg is so incredible. It's, it's, it's funny because I, I grew up, I think my, the first Spielberg that really affected me was like Jurassic Park. Um, And I did love it. But like, I didn't really grow up watching E.T. or really any other. I mean, I've, I've seen a bunch of Spielberg movies, but none of them are really, like, defining for me. Um, so it's always interesting when I hear that that was, like, one of the first. And obviously, yes, I love – I could talk about animation with you all fucking day. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I think Spielberg is – he's very accessible, like, of that that class of, of you know, filmmakers from, like, the 70s, you know, the Coppolas, the Scorseses, you know, even George Lucas – Spielberg, I think, is able to perfectly embody the idea of movie magic. And his films are made for the big screen. Like every movie is made for the big screen. But like Spielberg, I think, is able to command that space in a way that other filmmakers aren't. And when you're first getting into um, movies, like I think that that language is very clear and succinct and still entertaining. And so I think that's where it comes from, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, I remember, like, for me, one of the reasons why I loved animation so much, and obviously, I think it's something that it, a very early form of like film adoration, because a lot of kids grow up watching it, but I, I love to draw from an early age. So it was like one of those things where 
once I was like old enough con- to conceptualize the idea of like having a career, I was like, oh, I could, I can draw. I could, I could be an animator. And it's funny, I ended up going to animation school. Um, but it, it felt like such a, such a linear line to me as a child. I was like, oh yeah. Um, but I'm curious because I also, I had a lot of influences. Like mm-hmm. my father was very, he, well, it's funny to me now, um, because I wouldn't really consider him a film buff now. I wouldn't – he's not not into film, but, like, when I was a kid, it was so important for him. He loved showing me, like, Clint Eastwood movies, like, every – like, he's the one that got me really into Scorsese and Wes Anderson. Um, He, like, had this whole list of movies that he really wanted to show me. It was, like, a running joke in my childhood for a long time um, that he would show me so many movies. And one movie that we had never gotten around to was Ronin, which is, like – I don't know if you've seen it. It's, like, this crime movie that uh, (laughs) – Robert De Niro's in. It's a great movie. Um, but like every time we were going to watch a movie, it had been like pushed back to the list. So by the time I was like 17, 18, he would still be like, let's watch Ronin. And I was like, no, dad. <laughs> and, then, and, then we, and then when we finally watched it, I was like, oh, that was good. But it's kind of sad that like we don't have the like, let's watch Ronin anymore. But like what I'm getting at is I had a ton of people that were like, you should watch film. And if you're going to watch film, these are the films that you need to see. Like, you got to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You got to watch all of these. Um, And it kind of like, it kind of influenced my early taste. And then I got into other stuff later on my own. But did you have anyone like that that was kind of like, like, you know, guiding you? Or or was it really just like an interest that you developed 100% on your own? I think it was, it was pretty much on my own. I don't really come from a very like film centric family. Um, I like when we would go to the movies, it would be mainly during the summer uh, when I was at my grandma's house with my cousins, like we would go for, you know, the big tentpole like movies. And so I think that's why I have such a love for for blockbusters, because that would be when I would go to the theater. Um, And it wasn't really anyone like in my family who was like the film person and like I would go and see a bunch of things. I think a lot of my film tastes are very much like me piecemealing together things that I liked. Now I will say not to be like, oh, you know, my family just didn't support my interests. Um, <laughs> but my mom was much more influential with me when it came to TV. Like a lot of what she watched is what I watched. And so a lot of my TV interests uh, are informed by her. But as far as like film film goes, like it, it's been pretty on my own I will say one of my first memories with my dad is him taking me to the movies um and we went to go see the wild thornberries movie oh my god that movie's awesome so good still holds up (laughs) it's a very good movie um but beyond that I think it's been it's been pretty much on my own and then when I got to college I think that's when my my film taste really expanded because I minored in film so I was seeing a lot more stuff yeah that's I mean that's fantastic. It's, it is really interesting to me to see people find their way to it um, and like the contrast there because I feel like for me, it was I, – I I have two sisters and I was definitely – I mean – oldest oldest sister syndrome you know Mm -hmm. like I gotta make gotta make my parents proud um so like there was a certain extent I feel like where it was like my interest was like enthusiasm because my dad was really excited about it when I was quite young um but then my older cousin uh also was really into film and we would she was like my idol so like we would go do things together when I would spend summers uh near her where we would like go to Blockbuster and like pick out movies together and she would show me uh things that she loved and uh, 
I think it's really interesting to see like people who grow up with like a lot of film influences finding their way to like their own personal interests as opposed to the things that have influences them versus people who you know kind of explore on their own very young and you've actually talked a lot I mean your whole show is modeled after the idea that the afternoon special like TV series and TV specials are like super formative um, to to people's tastes I, I think something similar happens with literature where like children's mm. literature is actually kind of more important than adult literature because it it's so influential on who we become and our tastes as we as we grow up so I think TV is also just like super relevant oh, yeah for sure like I have I can't remember where I've said it but um I think that's why I'm so into and just so intrigued by um, like early childhood educational programming like Sesame Street and Blue's Clues because like it's not just these shows that teach kids, you know, letters and shapes and numbers, but they're also kind of this very ground level media literacy. Like kids are understanding the language of television and then from there they go on and graduate to, you know, much more mature shows and that informs like how they understand television. And I think that's why those shows are so important. Um, and that's why I question if people watch those things when they were younger now based on their media <laughs> literacy as adults. But, you know, oh, my God, yeah, that's what it is. But like <laughs> those TV is just so, I think, important. And I think it's so strange to me that TV and film, people still see them as being very divorced from each other when I think they work well, like hand in hand, like you kind of can use one to help inform your understanding of the other, you know, and vice versa. It just depends. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting as a parent, too, because uh, like I have my son watch like PBS, like PBS has like apps, you know, these days, mm -hmm. uh, PBS and even like, you know, Noggin, like the Nickelodeon, like kids show, uh, kids like platform. Uh, I, I It's really interesting to me to see how many kids watch like shows on Netflix and even like YouTube that as a as an adult, I watch them and it it literally just seems like they're created with the intent of like hypnotizing kids almost mm -hmm. you look back at kids media from when we were kids and it's so intentional you know I think that people write off children's media as like being just you know vacant and pointless but there's such a science and intention behind designing children's media to help them grow and teach them things um and and serve some kind of a purpose and it's it's really wild to see to me to see so much of media targeted at kids today that really does just feel like, well, just the whole point is to keep them calm, to distract them, to just, you know, literally mesmerize them for a minute. And it does nothing for their brains. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's just like straight sugar to the brain. It, it doesn't lend itself to having like a balanced media diet because I, I do think, you know, kids maybe don't want to be taught to all the time because they're still kids, you know, they still want to have, yeah. you know, they want to be entertained and there's a way to do that, but not just solely make it, you know, you know, I don't want to degrade anything, but you know, cocoa melon. <laughs> you can shit talk. I was going to say <laughs> cocoa melon. I've got my, in my fucking crosshairs, degrade it all you want. <laughs> but you know, I think there's, there could be merit to something like that in very small increments you know it's like the whole thing of on halloween you don't eat all of your candy your parents take it and they're like okay you can have a couple pieces and we're gonna break it up over over the next couple of days you're not gonna have it all in one thrush um and that just you know you're building that media diet it's balanced there's moderation there's a place for it but it's not 
it shouldn't be the biggest piece of of the pie because it doesn't yeah. really lend itself to offering anything that could be useful. And kids' minds at that age, and really until you're like 19, your mind is a sponge. You're just taking up all of this stuff. You're taking up all of what's around you, all of what you're watching and holding on to it and either, you know, internalizing it and processing it or letting it go. And it's it's important that you, you know, moderate as much as you can, kind of like, what what are your kids taking in? This is not the point of this podcast, but I'm like, what are, <laughs> what are your kids taking in? You know, watching it, build, helping them to build their media diet. And then when they're ready and they can do it by themselves, then, you know, they're better off. Well, no, but and I, I do think it's like it's relevant and it's important because I think that like, you know, you and I both grew up watching these kinds of things uh, that definitely from very early stages like helped shape our perception of not just the world, but but yeah, what media is supposed to be. And I don't know, it's it's horrifying to me when I see shows like Cocomelon that it's, you know, it's it's nothing. It's literally there's no value to it whatsoever. And, you know, like. I don't know, kids, when they're small, they have things like, you know, just like that play songs over and over again, like a little toy or something. And it's like, okay, sure. Like that's, but this is like next level. And then I also think about, I see so many kids that watch YouTube channels that are created by other kids, which Mm -hmm. in terms of like the ethics of that is questionable already. But then like, I also think like, you know, I mean, it's it's not replacing real life play where kids are supposed to play with each other and learn that way. And it's, it's just showing them content that's kind of nonsensical because kids are kids can be creative and wonderful, but they they don't exactly they're not known for being like linear thinkers, you yeah. know. Like it's <laughs> when kids are creating content, it's it's again just kind of I feel like creating like a little small small child echo chamber brain where they're just kind of reinforcing baseline child instincts and it's not really helping them to grow at all. It's it's weird. But but I do want to <laughs> I do want to move on to some of the actual some of the let's talk about some of the actual um pieces of media that really influenced and shaped you that uh you know that maybe maybe you didn't feel uh, 100% comfortable. I know for me there was a lot of uh things that I like came to accept that I thought were awesome a little bit later, like not necessarily when I was like in film school. And and some of the t- for some of the time I was outspoken. I've always been just like wildly outspoken. Um, but you know, it's it was interesting to me coming to the realization that there were things that like really affected me that I loved that I had always had kind of kept to myself in those spaces because I just you get tired of being laughed at, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd love I'd love to know, uh, let's jump in. Let's can you can you give us an example of one of those uh, pieces of media for you? Oh my gosh, yeah. When you brought up like you don't want to be laughed at, I got flashbacks to the first days of any film class you take and they do the whole like and you know, name, major, what's your favorite movie? And I just Oh God. <laughs> the anguish I would go through with like what movie do I say? Because do I say what's on my heart, which is bring it on? Or do I say the right film school answer, which is like in the mood for love? Like, what do you what do you say in that moment? Um, so it's funny that you you mentioned that because, oh, my God. Trauma. No, literally. It's and I yeah, I feel like I wonder what that was like for you, because for me, I feel like when I when I entered that space, I had already 
been living with my father my whole life. And I feel like I don't want this episode to turn into being like, my father was <laughs> like a typical man. Um, but like, I mean, in some ways it kind of was, you know, like my whole childhood, he was like, these are the greats. These are the great heels. It wasn't just movies. He was like, I grew up being like, listening to the radio with him and being like, who sings this? You know, this is ACDC, this is Weezer. You gotta, you gotta know, talking heads, you know, the like, hits. I, I had, yeah, exactly. You gotta have the classic rock education. You gotta have the classic film education. You gotta know what, what is good and what is good is considered broadly what appeals to men, you know, white men. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm not saying those things aren't great, you know, but like we have, we have more things that are maybe not, targeted to that audience and just because they're not targeted to that audience it's you know doesn't mean they're not also fantastic you mentioned bring it on and that movie is fucking incredible and honestly that movie deserves i mean the same kind of reverence that we would give like die hard i feel mm -hmm. like it's good I, I, I don't, it's fantastic i think it's so clever and it's like I think that a lot of teens, teen comedies, especially from the early two, 2000s, like the satire is whip smart, mm -hmm. pacing, perfect, casting, perfect. Please, please talk. Please give your give, give me your best ode to bring it on. I want to oh hear it. Oh, my God. How, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> but bring it on is one of those like if I had to like just quantify my my being, my essence in in film, bring it on is at the top of the list. Um, it was the film that inspired me to do a sport that ostensibly I don't think I really liked for six <laughs> to seven years. I was a cheerleader for six to seven years because I saw Bring It On and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be cool and I want to be sexy. And I did the sport and I was not great at it, but I still, <laughs> I was like, I will be fucking Gabrielle Union in and bring it on and I I think I definitely agree from that specifically from like that class of teen comedies it's so good I think the story is a little bit more ahead of its time than people give it credit for this idea of cultural appropriation and like how the two teams you know deal with it um I think in in different hands it probably would have had the uh the Toros like winning, like rewarding the white characters for realizing that stealing is bad. Um, I think in, in other hands it would have gone that way, but it was cool that the the Clovers won. They were the better team. They should have won. And having that outcome for that time at the very at, at least, because teen comedies, while they are great, I love a, you know, I love a she's all that. I, you know, love to bring it on, but they were not always the best when it came to racial dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. And that movie is not perfect by any means when it comes to it. <laughs> but what it does, like, attempt to do on a broader level and on, like, a top level, I think it does really, really well. And also, it's just fucking funny. Like, I, I still laugh at those jokes, and I've seen that movie no less than 100 times. Um... Of course, is everything, you know, 2023 safe? No, not at all. But it was made in like 1999 and came out in 2000. So I I give it grace for the temporal context. But it's it's just one of those movies that like I can just turn it on and be completely at ease and relax and be entertained. And, you know, as much as I love a movie that I can, you know, gnaw on and chew on mentally and be thinking about and, you know, trying to parcel out what does it mean? Sometimes I just, I need those movies that are just, uh, 
you know, popcorn fodder. Like, it, it's just fun. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think it's interesting because, like, you could compare it to maybe, like, super bad mm-hmm. in terms of, like, cultural relevance. Um, and I definitely think that Bring It On has a cult following. But it's interesting that Bring It On has more of a cult following and super bad was, like, a smash hit, you know? Yeah. I think in terms of comedy, like, Bring It On is absolutely top tier. And, yes, it's definitely dated, just like super bad is now dated. And there's, like, some things in there that's, like, eh. Um, but, like, it's... I really think I re- I really think that it is like a quality piece of filmmaking and I also think that in general, you know, comedies don't get the respect that they deserve. I think you I I, I know I've heard you talk about the fact that comedy is arguably harder from yeah. a, at least from a performance perspective oh than gosh. drama. So much harder to do. And I can speak firsthand because, you know, if you were wondering if I was, you know, cool and popular in college, um <laughs> I did sketch comedy for 2 years. <laughs> So. I'm learning so much about you, Bobby. I had no idea you were a cheerleader, and now I found out you did sketch comedy. Yeah, I was. I went from the top of the social pile with being a cheerleader <laughs> in high school, and then I went not to the bottom, but I was like, you know what, sketch comedy? Why not? <laughs> you pulled a reverse bottom. I really did. You, <laughs> you said, you know what, I want to be the the unpopular, untalented gay. Right. Like that's. <laughs> That's what I want to be. I want to be horny freak number one. Like that's, that's, that's <laughs> what I wanted. That was the that was the experience I wanted to have in college. But no, like in doing sketch comedy, you get to see how difficult it is. Number one to make other people laugh, but also to make yourself laugh. But no, yeah, performing comedy is performing and writing comedy. Um, and I I didn't know if it was like a, a sketch thing specifically, but I don't think it is. Like it's it's hard to make other people laugh but it's also hard to make yourself laugh and really like make yourself laugh like you have to laugh first before anyone else especially when you're writing and I always will you know as much as I was shit talking it I treasure the the time that I had doing sketch comedy and it's something that I still love and do for myself like you know in my downtime um but it's so difficult because coming up with a premise no matter how outlandish it is, I remember my last sketch that I wrote and uh, had performed was about uh, these detectives who only tro- like solve cheese related crimes. <laughs> and as I'm immediately invested, <laughs> immediately. <laughs> and as dumb as that that premise and setup is, it took weeks of working and reworking and working and reworking to make it cohesive and funny and you know and flow well and I think comedy just has so many more cooks in the kitchen when it comes to making something work like I think people think oh it's easy to make someone laugh but anyone who has cracked a joke to a room full of people and gotten crickets knows that that's not that's not like oh yeah yeah well and I feel like especially honestly for women I feel like I've had that experience multiple times where I say something that I think is fucking hilarious. And it's not that other people don't think it's funny. It's if I'm surrounded by men, they assume that I'm just stupid. They assume that it wasn't a joke. Like, I can't tell you how many times, especially in the early 2000s, because I feel like self-deprecating humor was like really popular. And so I would say something being like, this is hilarious. And then people would just be like, are are you dumb? Like, what? <laughs> I was like, no, I was, obviously I know it's not true. It's a, it's it's a, a joke. joke. <laughs> I feel like that's been a challenge 
for women and women targeted media, especially with comedy for a long time. It's why I think Bridesmaids was like such a surprise uh, for so many people are like, wow, women really can be funny. Oh, my God. It's like we've been uh, fucking funny. Actually, we've been funnier than you. Exactly. Literally. Like I was just looking. Uh, so, you know, fun fact, uh, Bring It On, directed by Peyton yeah. Reed. Uh, same director as like the Ant-Man films mm -hmm. and uh, another classic Down With Love, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but I love it. Ooh, I have not. You, oh my God, Bobby, you've got to watch it. It's uh, you, you in particular will love it. I'll give a little pitch here for everybody listening. It's uh, Ewan McGregor and Renee Zellweger, and it's a comedy uh, that's set in the 1960s. And it's based on like it's, it's like a parody kind of of those like 60s rom-coms. And it's about Renee Zellweger plays an author who writes a book Down With Love that's all about like tricking men into falling in love with you using their own game and Ewan McGregor plays a journalist trying to expose her who writes for like the top selling men's magazine so they're like trying to it's like a it's like a 10 things I hate about you kind of situation where they're like trying to bring each other down and they accidentally fall in love it's so creative and so funny and it plays off so much of those like 60s like studio rom-com tropes You'll absolutely love it. Ooh, uh, Megan, okay, for the for the listener out there, Megan has literally never steered me wrong when it comes <laughs> to a recommendation. Years at this point, probably a year ago, she recommended The Invitation, which still, go and see that movie. Find it. I don't <laughs> care, but it's a vampire movie. I remember she texted me and she was like, Bobby, I need you to see this movie. I think it's you're going to love it. And I'm not one to immediately just take a recommendation just because um i think it's my my scorpio nature i'm just like uh, i don't know but i was like you know what fuck it it's vampires i'll go check it out i went to the theater i was in there by myself i had the time of my life oh my gosh and i texted her immediately afterwards i was like that was amazing and so now i will follow her to the ends of the earth when it comes to, to recommendations Bobby, that's still like for me, like one of the biggest points of pride in my entire life. It's I I like this is like obviously with like my like TikTok and my page and things like that. Like I love recommending films in general, but one of my favorite things is like recommending films for specific people. And after I saw the invitation, I walked out there and I texted you and I texted my cousin, who was another early guest on this podcast. And I was like, that you two were literally the only two people. I was like, you two specifically need to see this movie. <laughs> I promise you. And both of you were like, that was good. That was a good time. And I was like, yes, I nailed it. Especially because it was getting dragged by – like, again, people did not understand – people did not see the vision. They didn't and get it. It got Jennifer's bodied. They didn't get it. It totally got Jennifer's bodied. Um, but yeah, bring it on, interestingly. Uh, also written – by uh, written by a woman, not surprisingly, mm -hmm. Jessica Bang Bendiger, who did such hits as uh, Aquamarine. I know that's a big Hell hit. Yeah. I I was a little bit too old for that one, <laughs> um, but also Stick It, which kicks ass. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, it only has a three point three on Letterboxd, hmm. whereas as I just checked, Superbad has a three point nine, and I just think I just think that's interesting. Is wow, Letterboxd users you know, hate women you heard it here it's first. just in <laughs> letterboxed is misogynist no like, i mean it is and this is a thing i do i actually think letterboxed is uh a lot more evenly spread i i gotta it's one of my pet peeves in the comments of anything i post on the internet if i like disparage like rotten tomatoes or something people will be like this is why imdb is better and i'm like no it's 
not IMDb is like a, the the demos for who uses IMDb are not widespread. It's, I mean, with any user generated rating system, like you're at the whim of what the demographics of any given site are. Like it's just yeah, you, you go with where you know the people that like similar shit to you are, and then that's when you're going to get a more you know accurate to you rating and i think that's why letterbox works i mean it's full of you know the most annoying people you've ever met on the planet but like definitely myself myself also myself included <laughs> <laughs> like i say this as someone who i love letterbox but i also know yeah. i know the demographic but like you get more people who are like film fans or at least you hope they are definitely and it really does feel like Letterboxd is like a, a ton of a ton of women I know mm, use Letterboxd. Yeah. Like it definitely feels like the first kind of platform that feels like there's a little bit more equity. It feels like people feel more comfortable expressing themselves on Letterboxd than than it. and it's also just like a platform that encourages women to use it. When I see things like Metacritic or IMDb, I, I feel like those spaces have been so dominated by that one demographic for so long that it's never been anything that I've been interested to like go and go and put my two cents on. But Letterboxd feels like a feels like a place where it's like, no, we can do we can do yeah. this. Love you, Letterboxd. Sponsor us. Exactly. We got all the love. I'm doing hard hands right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but OK, um, so hit me hit me with another one. I want to hear another uh, I want to hear another Bobby Bobby inspo piece of media. OK, uh, so film or TV, right? It can be either. Yeah. Okay. So I I would be shocked if you hadn't seen this, but I feel like I know you have. Um, Fleabag, another – Oh, my God. It, yes. It's, I mean, like everyone, you know, in and around their 20s or 30s uh, who's a woman uh, or has experienced the experience of being a woman, I think Fleabag was – crucial to them when it, when it came <laughs> yes out. oh my god yes and i when i remember seeing it um because i was in the throes of a really like bad time in my life i was grieving uh the loss of someone and so i just kind of was consuming anything to just kind of numb my brain and i remember the emmys had come around and fleabag like got all these emmys and i was like what is this show like what is this another random show no one's ever heard of that like you know <laughs> won all this shit like what is it so i remember being so cynical and i turned it on and i blew through the entire show in one night and i was like oh my gosh i cried i laughed uh it was so good and then i went back um at some point this year, I can't remember, and I wanted to rewatch it again to see, like, you know, out of a less grief-stricken mind, like, does it still hold up to me? And it it held up even more. Um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, hats off to her because that that show was so fucking good. Like, I wish I had more to say about it, but it's just, it's just so good, and I I love it so so much. No, it it is, and honestly, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has earned. I will watch I will watch anything she does from here on out, honestly, because of Fleabag, just because I'm like, eh, worth a shot. I mean, what I I love about Fleabag so much is that it feels like such an honest portrayal of womanhood in a way that's like even like Bridesmaids, and I love Bridesmaids so much, but it like even like the the humor, the humor is so quiet and the humor, the way that the humor is portrayed is like 
Humor's Fleabag is for Fleabag only. Mm -hmm. You know, like she makes her little jokes for herself and she's fucking hilarious, but she doesn't care if anyone else thinks she's funny. And I feel like a lot of women have that kind of relationship with humor because we're so used to being treated like we're not funny and people don't get our jokes that like some of the funniest, cleverest people I know are women and their humor is just so subtle and so quiet because half the time if you make a joke for the class, you're going to get looks like you're a fucking moron. And so like seeing that kind of representation, that kind of like, obviously Fleabag is like emotionally devastating. And it's like, it's so, it's at times like very, uh, it's, it's a, it's a real and earnest and flawed portrayal of womanhood. Um, but it's also, it speaks to like the isolation of womanhood. Even her relationship with her sister is like, she loves her sister. And I have two sisters and I just felt so seen by that. It's like, you're never going to fully be able to represent yourself to your sister. The other, the, some of the only other women on the entire planet who could have the best chance of really understanding and empathizing with you because we are all conditioned to kind of see other women as like competition. And it's, it's so hard to get out of that mindset. And you would think that with your sisters, that's like the best chance you have to get out of that. But it's almost worse sometimes because there's so much of this history and this animosity and, jealousy and competition and even though there's this deep deep love there's also there's always going to be this this level to it that makes it really complicated and it was just so refreshing to see all of that, all of that the complexity of how isolating it can be to be a woman and how funny and clever and brilliant you can be but really sometimes you're the only one who sees it and at the same time we're told that we you know if we value ourselves if we think that we're we're great. If we think our shit doesn't stink, society's like, oh my God, wow, she needs a reality check. She needs an ego check. Um, But the devastating part of it is that a lot of times we have to be our own best champions because no one else is going to be. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like Fleabag was so earnest in its portrayal of all of that. And it just, yeah, it was honestly one of the most honest Honestly, one of the most honest. I'm, God, reaching here. Where's my thesaurus? But like pieces of media about and by women that I've ever seen in my life. It's just so, so good. And season two, so horny. Oh, my so God. Horny. I am I'm, I'm seeing um, all of us are strangers uh, this Lucky. weekend. I'm like, I oh, my cannot God. wait. That man knows knows how to give the audience what mm. they want, which is which is horniness. <laughs> Like that scene when they're in the confessional and he just opens the door. Oh my gosh. I know that's blasphemous to some. I'm sure shout out to the Catholics out there, but I am not. I'm Baptist. So to me, that was hot. As a former Catholic who has never wanted to fuck a priest, um, I was perfectly fine with it, honestly. (laughs) So. Oh, God. For me, the moments that really hit me were the moments when he was like almost angry with yeah. her. Like the moments when he was like, why did you why did you come here? Because he was like it was like the fact that he was angry with her for like being a temptation for him was just so hot. So <laughs> hot. So I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Literally. Oh, my God. Twirling the hair, kicking the feet. Mm, yeah, pretty much. I was like, wow, I love God so much. <laughs> God is good. That's what God they say. Is good all the time. <laughs> Bobby, I I should know this about you. You do you have sisters? I feel like you have a brother. You've told yes, me. Yes, I have. I have been only surrounded by boys pretty much my my whole life. I don't have any sisters. 
I have one little brother and I have two cousins who I basically grew up with. And so I, I view them as brothers. Um, so I'm the only girl out of out of my family um, wow. on my mom's side. And then on my dad's side, I have like, you know, cousins who are girls, but I wasn't uh, as close with them as I was with my, my mom's side of the family. But yeah, I have grown up kind of maneuvering girlhood pretty much on my own like say for obviously like my my mom and my my grandma you know aunts and stuff but as far as like having someone who was my age and also was a girl growing up yeah it would just be at school and then outside of that I'm you know it's a fucking sausage fest I'm surrounded by dudes okay so yes you are so so right to bring up Fleabag because Fleabag is truly like life-changingly excellent um but I now I, I need more. I gotta I gotta know what else you have for me. I I I feel like I'm learning so much about you. Oh my gosh! Wow, <laughs> it's like we're on a date a little bit. Like, do you want some wine? I don't know. It feels like a date. It, I don't know. I gotta love that for us. <laughs> oh my gosh! I have so many. So I wrote down five. Like Megan said, like prepare three to four, and I was like, well, I'll give you five. Just See in and. Case. This is why, Bobby. This is why I knew you were the one because you come fucking prepared. I love it. Damn right I do. Damn right <laughs> I do. Um, okay, so this next one is not so much female-centric. Sorry, women. No. Um, but it is something that I think is was super-duper crucial to how, like, outside of the realm of animation and – or, well, film animation and – Spielberg, like this was pretty crucial to me becoming a pop culture nerd like I am. And that's The Simpsons. I, I I fucking I love that show so, so much. Oh, my God. The Simpsons is fantastic. I'm not surprised at all to hear how much you love them. Did you start watching them when you were a kid? I think I started watching them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was like a teenager um, and it wasn't on TV, I think what got me to start watching the show was the movie coming out. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So when the movie came out, I think it came out during the summer. And like I mentioned previously, like I spent the summers at my grandma's house with my cousins. And so it was a big deal to go and see that movie because we all had to call our parents <laughs> and get permission <laughs> to go and see this movie because my grandma was like, I don't know, it was PG-13. Like, <laughs> I don't know if your parents want you go going to see it. And my mom was like, yeah, you can, I don't care. Um, <laughs> like, it should be fine. So going to see the movie, I was like, oh, like, this is, you know, a really cool show. And because streaming was a, wasn't what it was, um, because that was like 2007, I hopped online to a, one could say, pirated website <laughs> and watched the episodes like like chopped up into pieces and everything. And that's how I like got into watching the show itself. And then, you know, once it came on different streaming platforms, I've gone back and watched a ton of the seasons. So it's just, it's one of those shows to me that I think is so it's so smart. Like obviously all the writers are, are brilliant. A lot of them are like Harvard educated guys. Like, so a lot of the writing is just super like whip smart. Um, and also it is, I think if you're, if there's ever a show that you want to kind of teach you pop culture, the Simpsons is one of the best to do it because they drop so many references and you, you're kind of forced to look things up if you don't know them. Um, just so you can understand like what the joke is. And so that show 
was really crucial in me kind of gaining this pop culture acumen because I had to keep up with what they were talking about reference wise because <laughs> some of these episodes were like you know at that point were probably you know 20 years old and so the references weren't as fresh to my then maybe like 11 or no 2007 I was eight so like I was like eight years old and I had to get kind of caught up in what what all of these references meant and so now it's this show that I I revere for so many reasons but it kind of helped me to learn the language of pop culture in a way that is so funny to me that speaks to such like generational differences to me that like an eight-year-old bobby was like on youtube looking for episodes of the simpsons but yeah no the simpsons uh it's been it's remarkable how they've able to maintain cultural relevancy for so long Mm -hmm. like it's truly it's impressive to see i think it's one of the like it's like a bastion of television. It's like this thing, you know, it's almost like the, its own entity in a weird way. Um, but it's been able to, like when it first came out, it was kind of this countercultural, not, I wouldn't say weird because it was very, it was very vanilla, but for like going back historically and looking at it being seen as this like very irreverent and like kind of like nasty thing and like, people like parents were terrified of their children being influenced by Bart and like (laughs) wanting to, you know, like say like eat my shorts and things like very, what would be considered now very vanilla, very tame things. And then seeing how it becomes this like massive, you know, pop cultural hit. And then like the kind of lull period where I think it begins to parody itself. And then now what's really interesting about The Simpsons in current day, like the current seasons, I think it's become less of wanting to be the show that's building on its own canon and almost like finding new life. And so there are so many new writers and young writers and young animators who are taking this like bastion of television and making it their own Um while also still like honoring these characters who people have known for, you know, 30 plus years. And it's just really interesting. Like I think this past season or this upcoming season, they're going to, they had a like a completely like anime style uh, episode. And I did see that. So cool. It was like, I think it was death. No, it might've been taken from a couple different um, like uh, anime, like shows and stuff, but just, the willingness in recent years with the show to change the the animation. I know there was like the Lego episode. Um, there was a, I think it was a Treehouse of Horror episode, but it was a Claymation Coraline episode. So likening to like Leica Studios and everything like that. Like I think The Simpsons has almost become this like one-stop shop for, for animators. Because I know Guillermo del Toro has done like a couch gag segment. Uh, that's really, it's really, really fun and interesting. Um, so yeah, I think it's just kind of become this like little hub for, for animation now. And it started in, I would say like a pretty, uh, I won't say desolate, but animation was very different when it, when it came out. Um, and I think it was definitely in charge of kind of paving the way for that renaissance that animation had in the nineties, um, not just outside of Disney, but in television as well. And then they kind of, you know, laid the groundwork. Yeah. No, I mean, I think what's really remarkable about The Simpsons, too, is like it's I think I think it had a, a kind of a really interesting effect on 
sitcoms and like influencing like um, the American representation of the modern family because I think it is interesting because a lot of people really did think early on like oh it's like bad for kids it's a bad influence but I think a lot of the sitcoms prior to that like a lot of the conflict especially family sitcoms was like conflict within the family and like resentment played for comedy and even though there is some of that in the Simpsons like the episodes that stick with me the most are the ones that are like profoundly about how much they love each other like I always think of doing the doing it for Maggie episode that oh, yeah where Homer is like just so he has this corporate job that he hates that's soul-sucking and he has so few pleasures in life but like the one thing that keeps him going is doing it for his like little girl um or like the episodes about Marge and Homer and how much like yeah Homer's an idiot but like the way how much he loves Marge is always so endearing mm-hmm. um and I think you know it's a precursor for shows like Bob's Burgers and Malcolm in the Middle that came a little bit later that like yeah it's about a you know family that isn't always 100% functional but it's like it's not just that like the dysfunction is played for laughs it's it's you know trying to get to something deeper and also acknowledging that like it's it's based off of loving these people so much even when they drive you crazy and I think that that's that's really sweet and really had I, I think the, the Simpsons were kind of a pioneer in that respect oh yeah for sure I think you don't you don't get a show like Bob's Burgers which I think has definitely improved upon the the formula of of endearing dysfunction um <laughs> that that show does so well without the Simpsons and it's not it's not perfect I think the relationship dynamics between Homer and Marge <laughs> can teeter on being just horrific yeah for sure um, yeah to 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 witness but you can tell that there is a love there but you can also see like how different creators who went on to make other shows especially within the adult animation space uh saw the blueprint that the simpsons laid out and then they were like okay this is how we're gonna improve upon it um and i think like is like to me, Bob's Burgers is the most worthy successor to The Simpsons as far as like what it's trying to do and still having like heart at the core of of the comedy. Like I I wouldn't necessarily say that a show like Family Guy or American Dad or South Park, they were intending to do that. Yeah. Um, it was it's just a different, you know, sector of comedy and it and it has merit. But I think The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers are those two shows where I'm always just like, there's still like a love and a heart and a a warmth at the at the core of this definitely and i south park was so big when i was a teenager everybody loved it and i i enjoyed it i've never i've never been a family guy fan um and i do i do think it's because it lacks that kind of like i think i think there's something about the simpsons where even when it's flawed it's like it's okay with being sincere and i think a lot of especially comedy like is terrified of being corny or like you know like putting putting themselves out there in that kind of way I feel like the entire shtick of like South Park and like Family Guy specifically is like everyone couldn't give a fuck everyone hates each other everyone has ulterior motives like and you know it's about being dry and emotionless at all times um like, I mean, like, I think of, like, the Meg character alone, and I'm just, like, yeah, like, the whole idea that, like, everybody in her family hates her, and that's just it. That's the whole joke. is like, horrible, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But like, yeah, and I think that The Simpsons, even when they weren't perfect or when they were leaning into um, the comedy, I don't think the comedy was ever intentionally spiteful, even when they had failings. And I think that that is something that really appeals to a different kind of audience. And Bob's Burgers, I, I agree, has totally like even increased upon that so much. Yeah, I mean, I could include Bob's Burgers on this list, too, because I, I, oh I, I know you love that show just as much as me. And it's <laughs> yeah. just... It's just such a good show and it is the perfect like when I just need my brain to take a little bit of a break, mm-hmm. I can throw on Bob's Burgers. I always start it from like the same point and I just let it play through and the episodes never get old. Like the food truck episode from season two. Oh my God, that episode's is, so good. It still makes me laugh. Like I think <laughs> it's, it's again, it's that endearing dysfunction where you have Gene and Louise like cyber bullying like hipsters online you have Tina who's having this like complete identity change and she just calls herself (laughs) Dina and like sounds exactly the same Linda like getting road rage and then Bob just like trying to keep it all together like it's so many moments in that show where I'm just like this is just too good it's just it's too good of a show it's it's truly it's honestly perfect I think it's one of one of the greatest television shows of all time, period. I have a special place in my heart for the Christmas episodes. Did you see this year's Christmas episode? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, my God. It's It made me cry. It's it's so sweet. It's like the premise is that like, uh, they overbooked. And so the kids uh, the kids have multiple Christmas like performances happening at the same time. Oh, yeah. I've seen a clip of this. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know – they're like trying to figure out how they can get to all of them or if they're going to be able to and like who what they should prioritize and it's just it's such an endearing sweet like ode to what families have to sacrifice for each other and like specifically there's like a like the siblings have like a really sweet kind of interaction that just as a, as an older sister just just gets me it's to me so much. You, I I can't wait. We'll have to talk when you watch it because it's so sweet. Uh, you know, interestingly, I just recently saw a clip, like an early version, like animated. Uh, it was just sketched sketch animation um, of a clip from the first episode because I don't know if you know. I just found this out, even though I'm a huge fan, that the the show was originally intended for them to actually be cannibals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That that first clip, it was it's dark. It's like Bob and Linda having the same conversation that they have in the very first episode, where they're in the basement grinding the meat, but they're actually grinding people up into the mm-hmm. meat, and they're having this conversation. And I was like, oh, "Whoa! Like this that would have been different." Like, <laughs> I, I think it, I think they made the right changes. Um, but yeah, it was, it's it is really interesting how it kind of, and it, it's I do think it's funny because even within that clip, I think they had that tone of like you know emotional sincerity just with this really kind of absurd dark uh setting but yeah it's it is interesting to see how far it's come since its original concept even yeah like i think the the choice to make it the two choices that they made were number one not to make them cannibals and number two to make tina a girl are two of the smartest choices that they could have possibly made um because I think it would have been fine if Tina was originally a boy. And I think in that, uh, I think it was like an animatic or something like that. But Tina is originally a boy. But there's something about how that character explores and gives light to just the unabashed awkwardness of being <laughs> 13. <laughs> and the weird 
horniness that comes <laughs> yeah. with it and like yeah. how she's just so unabashedly like exploring these very intimate feelings that she has for Jimmy Jr. whoever it is that's the object of her desire um and then also just like the the weird you know strange kookiness of, of puberty I think it, it's it, it made the show better I remember when I was first watching it and I saw a character like Tina I'm like I wish I had a character like that when I was like a kid and like a kid show to say like hey it's okay that this is awkward and feels weird yes because it is no there's so it's Tina's such a fascinating character because there's so few characters like her like that are just portrayed I think like the closest that I could possibly compare it to and it's a completely different reference but um the girl from eighth grade. Have you seen eighth grade? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I love that film and I love how um also how earnest of a portrayal of that time and how just outside of your body and society you feel. Um, but like there's there is like that being like a twelve to fourteen year old girl is the most insane period of life, I think, for it that anyone could possibly experience like it's mm -hmm. it's and I mean like the way that you just feel so different and like I, I what I love about Tina is that she's so so weird and her family still loves her so much um while acknowledging that the shit that comes out of her mouth is fucking unhinged <laughs> like, like the I love the episode I think it's um bad tina i think is the name of the episode oh i remember this episode she linda is like encouraging her to get back at tammy <laughs> to is encouraging her to go read her erotic friend fiction <laughs> to the whole class. and it's not until later that bob is like wait what did you tell her to go to that she's like oh that's a bad idea let's go stop her <laughs> Oh my god. And no one bats an eye that she's writing erotic fan fiction, <laughs> which is something that we've either all done or definitely all read yep. at that, that point. But it's cool that her family is just like, this is just something that she does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's oh yeah, Tina, there need to be there need to be more Tina's. And honestly, this is exactly why I want to have you on because this conversation, it's interesting. We talk about we're talking about animation at whole, and you know that the idea is like how did this specifically affect you, you know, as a person that's not represented most of the time in mainstream media and it's not, you know, you're not you're not the majority in most of these spaces. And of course animation could apply to anybody, but I do I think about if I were if I were ever able to have a conversation like the one we're having right now in film school and I genuinely don't think I would have been able to and bear in mind I went to film school 10 years ago. You know, so I mean, things could have changed. But like I don't I think I think if I would have brought up Hey Arnold in a conversation about about film that was formative I would I genuinely would have been laughed at by most of the people that I went to school with. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean like I I wasn't you know I wasn't there wasn't like a specific like film like school at at my university. It was kind of just like it was a part of the arts school and you like took classes and you can you know if you declared a major you're taking more classes if you declared a minor you're taking less. Um, so because I was a minor, I still was like consistently taking classes, but not as many as other people. And every single time I walked into a class, there's just that overwhelming feeling of like, I, I don't like, you know, film or I don't like TV in the right way. 
because you see the people who immediately, you know, win the favor of professors or whatever it is because they, you know, they love Fellini or whatever it is and yeah. you automatically feel kind of inferior. And I think for so many of my, uh, the courses that I took, they were taught by, you know, predominantly kind of white men. And I think that contention between, you know, me as a, a woman of color, as a black woman in a film space, in a academic film space where there's already not that many of us. Like, I think as my classes were on, I was like the only, you know, black woman in those classes overwhelmingly and a very small portion of like people of color in them in general especially and also like woman too so really it wasn't it was not a lot of people who were not white guys taking <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you went to school in georgia too correct yeah the university of georgia i mean off. yeah you would think you would think that of all places like you'd at least have a greater likelihood of having a more diverse uh student body at, at a georgia university yeah i mean i think production wise the way that they split it up at my school i will say was a bit strange because the film school is in one school and then entertainment and media studies, which was pretty much everything else, like as far as production and, you know, create and like screenwriting and all that stuff was in a completely separate school. So I think a lot of people were in entertainment and media studies and I was friends with a lot of them. Um, and so I think that was where a lot of the diversity was. But as far as in the film side which was in the other school that was more directly strictly academic so it was a lot of theory and you know history and things like that and that was overwhelmingly uh pretty homogenous as far as like just being kind of like white guys for the most part yeah yeah it's I mean it's one of those things where like I do feel like just so much of the time I have felt pressured to give the right answers. I know you mentioned that specific phrase earlier that it's like people are looking for like what's the right what's the right answer for the right audience. And I think people do that kind of thing in general all the time. Like you you read the room and you know who you're talking to and you can have different conversations with different people and it doesn't necessarily mean that like there's an element of like, you know, oppression or or being silenced. It's just you know the kind of reactions you're going to get. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of women and especially definitely women of color and women who are marginalized in, in more than one way, intersectionality obviously comes into play here. Um, but that it's, you kind of learn to, to temper your answers, your, the way, the things you're going to say in order, because you're expecting a certain kind of reaction. Um, mm -hmm. and I definitely, in every academic space I've been in, I've definitely found that to be like co just constantly on my mind. Oh, yeah. Like it's it's always interesting whenever we like had like a breakout session and you were able to talk to people directly. And I, <laughs> I always was waiting for the moment when I'm talking to someone and you can kind of just see their eyes glaze over whenever <laughs> you talk about whatever film, you know, spoke to you. So if I was like, oh, one of my favorite films is, is Bring It On, you can just see their eyes kind of just glaze over. But then when they're talking about, you know, their favorite film that's some you know german expressionist film from the 30s you're <laughs> meant to immediately kind of glob on to what their idea of top-notch cinema is and again like i said because the professors and kind of the the student body of a lot of these classes tended to be from the same identity groups it was almost this kind of um 
groupthink or kind of just very uh, uh, insular way of looking at like what is deemed as, you know, the top of the heap when it comes to cinema. Like we, it was interesting to see the split of what we studied versus what we didn't. Um, Cause I think, you know, there wasn't a ton of women directors that we watch stuff from. Um, and we would even just have like portions like this is when we talk about women and now we're done. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I don't completely fault them because I do, I do still, you know, I'm happy for the things that I learned and I'm very grateful for the education that I was able to get. And I think, you know, they are still really great professors, but I was able to see those blind spots a bit um, more. And it wasn't until I finally had a, a professor who was a woman that I was like, okay, like this is, this is what I'm talking about. And even still, you know, there was a bit of a, a distance because she was a white woman and I'm, a black woman I'm like eh, you're not gonna get it all right but you know we're, we're doing it a little bit better than other classes <laughs> but that's honestly I think that's why conversations like this are so important because I think that until we start genuinely like having conversations about the ways that people that don't fit the standard like what the the, the demographic that we have seen represented that we have seen uh, making the films that provide the representation for so long. And, you know, white people and specifically white men, um, until we start genuinely getting to the bottom of who, you know, what what inspires people and why and what different things. Because it doesn't – I'm not saying that the, the films that inspire that demographic – are bad or wrong or shouldn't inspire them. I just think that we're we're only seeing part of the picture. And I, I try to have this conversation with people sometimes and it's hard to explain, but like it's not just that it's not just that people have been limited from participating. It's not just that, you know, the demographics are less represented and therefore, you know, we have less to show for it. It's that because film has been made predominantly by and for one demographic, white men and white people, especially in this country in America, um, it's shaped our entire idea of what constitutes good film. It's shaped our entire mm -hmm. cultural concept of like what's worthy of praise, which is like it's it's so limiting. It's so fucked up because it, it creates this barrier that anytime someone creates something that isn't for that audience, like you get like the turning red effect with like the fucking critics that are like, oh, well, I couldn't relate to it. And it's like just because you couldn't relate to it has nothing to do with the quality. Like you're it's just, it's not everything is for you, dude. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like I, I remember when all of that was happening, it really made me like enlightened to the fact that for so long, and I think this is a experience that many a person of color or any marginalized person really can, can attest to, which is like you so often watch media where you don't see yourself. And so in order to sometimes enjoy it, you have to find yourself in more unconventional ways. So if there's not a character who looks like me, there may be a character who has a similar personality trait to me and I can still find that that piece of humanity to tie me to the story if that's what, you know, the story is intended for me to do. But I find that people who consistently find themselves <laughs> in media cannot 
do the same. And if they don't see themselves, they're like, they start freaking out and they're just like, oh, well, it's not worth my time because, and they come in with some, you know, bullshit reason. But I know that it's because like, baby, you don't see yourself and you're freaking out. And like Black Panther is proof positive of that. Like, I think so many people were freaking the fuck out because they're like, it's a superhero that's that doesn't look like me and none of the people in the story really look like me we have one guy and i'm like yeah welcome to my world babe like where we have <laughs> one person yeah who is like our, our our representation and it's a skill to be able to just you know not hinge your ability to relate to something solely on if you can visually identify but if you can really get to the core of their character like that's another I think layer of media literacy that a lot of people kind of lack and they don't even know that they lack it. Oh, I mean, that's exactly it. I feel like, cause you, you see sometimes people are very overt with it. Like the turn, the turning red guy is a perfect example, but I, I have to have this conversation with people constantly online where I'm like, you don't have to say the words. I couldn't relate because the character was a woman or because the character was black or because the character was a black woman or a gay man or anything. You don't have to say those words for that bias to inherently like be implicit in you, you know, like mm-hmm. you might not even realize that you're viewing these characters through a, a fundamentally different lens because you don't see yourself in it. And it's it's wild to me that, you know, a lot of people, specifically white men, I know it, like a lot of white women struggle with this too because um, white supremacy is a real bitch. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you, you know, if you're not doing the work, then you're never going to get better. Um but this idea that like I'll, I'll hear people say things like, well, you know, it is kind of a niche movie or like, you know, I think, uh, you know, even though it doesn't speak to my experience, I, I think it was still enjoyable. And even innocuously phrased things like that, I just feel like it's like you're already kind of framing it through this ideology that like it's other, it's different. And your mm. your perspective is like the normal, you know, the 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 usual like and I feel like normal is such an insidious word to use there because it really like for so many white people and I think particularly white men but it's definitely a problem amongst you know all of us is that anything that doesn't explicitly represent our experience is just automatically categorized in our brain as like well this is like it, it's good but it's like not it's, it's just like it's it's different. It's like for a different crowd. And I can still let – even when people are like quote unquote open-minded enough to still like enjoy it, it's like you're fundamentally putting it in a category of like this isn't the normal experience though. And that's that's one of the reasons why it's such a problem because it's not a normal experience. It's just a, an experience that you relate to. And that's that's what people fail to click with. Yeah. I think I, I see it a lot um, outside of, of white men when it comes to like – coming of age narrative centered around uh women i think oftentimes I'm, I'm constantly having to reinforce uh with especially white women that like hey like you know i can find bits and pieces of this thing that i you know relate to but just know that like this is still representing white girlhood or white womanhood and it's not a problem like it's not an issue but i think so many people view those things in very universal terms as like this is what it means to be a woman and I think to a certain extent that happened a lot with with Barbie as much as I you know I enjoyed the film I'm like yeah this is very much so like this is white womanhood and I don't think it it needed to be anything else because 
they hinged it on Margot Robbie being like stereotypical blonde white Barbie. So yeah. I, I get it from that perspective. But I think sometimes when people talk about, you know, whenever on Twitter they're talking about like these are the films that are crucial to girlhood and they're, you know, either from Greta Gerwig or from Sofia <laughs> Coppola. Yeah. I'm like, babes, let me tell you something. They will never be able to fully represent my experience and I think in film there's a real big lack of celebrating those other aspects of especially womanhood um and not shrouding them so much in in struggle and things like that but really just representing them as like this is just my experience this is just what I you know interact with and I think weirdly enough I think tv does it a hell of a lot better than Bobby then film does it. I I could not agree more. And literally, I could have a whole nother conversation with you about that because I, as soon as you started talking, I started thinking about Insecure because I fucking Mm -hmm. love Insecure. And I know that it's like more of an adult story than necessarily like coming of age. But I I think he's really so brilliant. And I think it's, there should definitely be more media that's just like, this is, your experience isn't universal. This is just it. And Relate to it or don't. Yeah, I think yeah, a show like Insecure definitely kind of falls in the lineage of a lot of shows that I grew up watching um, because my mom, like I said, like she, I think, curated a lot of my my TV taste in a way because um, it falls in the, the lineage of shows like A Different World and Living Single and Girlfriends, which were these shows that were about Black women for Black women. And yeah, like you could – you, if you were not a part of that group, could find something to relate to. But I think there was a really big focus on intention with like, no, this is for us. Yeah. Like we share a lot with y'all all the time. Yeah. This one's for us and you can stay and shut up and listen <laughs> and, you know, be entertained or whatever it is. But like whatever like happens, like this is a show that is for us. And I do think that Insecure, you know, my reading of it is like, I do think that it is for it's by black women and and for black women but i do think that there is a universal thread to it that a lot of women can relate to especially with you know relationships and friendships and things like that but i those shows you know the isa rays the mara Braca keels like the the you know the quinta brunson's now like these are the people that i look to and i always was able to find myself a lot easier than i was in in film, whenever I felt alone in film and like I was kind of in an island by myself trying to find myself, TV was always that that bit of solace where I was like, okay, there I am. Like, yeah, I can I can point to myself and be like, oh, you know, these are these are just shows that, you know, we're not afraid to tackle, you know, tough topics. Uh, one of the uh, the episodes that always sticks out in my mind of a different world is an episode about domestic violence and a different world takes place in college. And so it's like young people having these really, you know, deep discussions, but it's also like, it's a sitcom. So there's that thread of comedy there. Um, and it goes back to what we were talking about where comedy is difficult to do, especially when you're talking about something serious, but able to still be comedic, but not downplay the serious part. It's incredibly difficult, but like these shows didn't have I think the eyes of sometimes when you have the eyes of 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 whiteness there's this expectation to depict struggle all the time yeah and with you know shows like girlfriends and living single 
it was just about these characters experiencing life just like everyone else does, but they're still black. Like there is still that, that core value to them. That is, they don't, you know, deny their blackness with, while experiencing, you know, relationships and friendships and, you know, all the, the kookiness that comes with life. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's always where I was able to be like, okay, so I'm not completely crazy. And it's not to say that we're like, you know, television is on the cutting edge of representation all the time because there's so much work to be done um, still in that way. But it, you know, when I look at the Emmys, I never wonder like, oh, there's one black nominee, like, or one black winner. Like now I'm, it's consistent. Like last year seeing Quinta, you know, get her Emmy, seeing Cheryl Lee Ralph get her Emmy. And like, it's just so many people you know, in front of the screen and behind the screen who are black women finally getting their due in, in, in entertainment. And it's just, it's incredible. It, it warms my heart. It moves me and it motivates me. Um, and I hope that that experience is universal or will soon be universal for other like, you know, marginalized groups as well. Yeah. I mean, and I, I hope that it translates to uh, black women getting more opportunities in in film, because I mean, I, I've noticed this for a while where I feel like uh all like I've seen many more women um, of all ethnicities, but especially women of color getting opportunities in TV um, significantly more than I see in the film world. And I think that it's, you know, it's great to see, uh, you know, female black female showrunners and shows that are definitely like for audiences that have been underrepresented. Um, I, I, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, and I, not that and we live in a world where, you know, TV and film are, you know, intertwined and muddied in such a way. Um, but I also know that film comes with like a bigger paycheck a lot of the time and like more prestige, more career opportunities. And so like it's it's great seeing these steps and hopefully these women get the trajectory behind them to uh, to push them into these uh, like super mainstream spaces because we need to have more black women who have household name rec- rec- recognition. Um in the film industry, you know, like it's absolutely vitally important. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm hoping that that will spread to other areas of the industry as well. Like I want to see, you know, more black people in general, um, in, in front of and behind the screen, um, and, and animation. I mean, like it, animation is a huge piece. I think now of of the black community, like there are so many people who have a genuine love for it and, there are so many shows that I'm like, ah, oh, this is so good, but they're like few and far between. Like I think of a show like Craig of the Creek, which is on Cartoon Network, which was a phenomenal show. And it was so unapologetically black, but also about this, you know, it had a very Spielbergian kids on bikes kind of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And it was just a great show. But again, it, you know, got it got canned. And so many of these shows, like they get a strong first season and then all of a sudden the network's like, oh well we don't know if it's doing well so we're gonna have to cancel it but some of the worst shows I've ever seen in my life get you know <laughs> yeah. six seven eight nine seasons to figure it out and I'm like oh guys come on yeah yeah well Bobby it is literally always such a delight talking to you and I always consider it a pleasure when I get to um put it on tape so that I can remember it forever <laughs> Yeah, um, put it on put it on tape we have a tape recorder <laughs> yeah i've got a little cassette going <laughs> speaking of nostalgia media <laughs> but uh thank you so much for coming on uh this has been such a pleasure and 
again, you were you were like one of the first people I thought of when I even conceptualized this podcast. So it's really it's really an honor to be able to um, listen to you and your wisdom. Uh, <laughs> why don't you can you can you plug yourself? Tell tell the people. I think I've plugged you like seventeen times on here, but one more. Let's do one more. Eighteen. <laughs> Um, I mean, no, yeah, you can you can find me on the internet at the afternoon special on TikTok. I'm not there as much these days. I may be making a comeback, but also maybe not. I always say like, guys, I'm coming back, and then I'm not. <laughs> um, but you can also find me on Instagram again at the afternoon special. Uh, you can mainly find me on Twitter. That is where I'm ranting and raving at all times. And be horny. Uh, Don't leave that out. I'm being very horny. That comes, <laughs> that's that's my, fa- my favorite Bobby tweets are your horny Bobby tweets. <laughs> so unhinged. I love it. I I realize I'm like, I can't want to work in this industry and be <laughs> as horny. Like I too many times on the internet, especially recently, I've been like um, the hot dialect coach, like, you know, from those like wired like videos. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I've referred to him as the hot dialect coach. I know his name and I shouldn't be so horny for him, but I can't help it. He's the hot dialect coach to me, but whatever. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. I also have a podcast, which as we're recording today, it just came back. But by the time this goes up, it'll still be there. <laughs> um, but it's it's a, it's a great show and I'm going to have Megan on. I always say like, Megan, you should come on. And then it never happens. And that's my fault. I'm a bad friend. But and, well, I will. I, I mean, I, I've proven myself to be flaky enough enough of the time <laughs> that I really don't. I don't blame anybody when I because I'm like, no, I get it. Like, I think we <laughs> we rescheduled this recording like three times because I was like, can I? You know, I know know yourself is a, is a thing that's really important to me. So that is that is true. It's for no other reason than scheduling snafus that Megan has not been on the show. But I I definitely like especially this season. I would love to love to have you on just to talk. We just talk about anything. You know, we have I mean, another date. Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll, I'll buy the wine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it for me. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. And thank you guys for listening. We will be back next week with another amazing guest. Uh, Until then, if you're enjoying The Broad Perspective, one of the best ways to support us is by leaving a review or rating on like Spotify or Apple or there's probably other places. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, But anyways, uh, happy holidays and we will see you next week.